Welcome to Rule of Law Talk, a podcast series by the World Justice Project. I'm Joel Martinez, the WJP's Director of Engagement, and today is host of a conversation with Professor Rebecca Sandifer, a distinguished sociologist and legal scholar whose research focuses on inequality, particularly as it relates to law. Today, we're going to be talking about access to civil justice, what the term means, what the research says about it, and how it can be improved. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to Rule of Law Talk for more vital conversations like this one. In the past few years, studies highlighting the justice gap, the difference between people's civil legal needs and the resources available to meet those needs, have received increased attention in the United States. At the international level, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals have magnified the debate around the need to address the justice gap worldwide, with Goal 16 challenging governments to provide access to justice for all. Data in both the United States and across the globe underscore the tremendous need for progress. Over the past few years, WJP's Rule of Law Index has identified civil justice as an area with significant room for improvement in the United States, and internationally, WJP's Global Insights on Access to Justice found that more than half of people surveyed in 45 countries had experienced a legal problem in the past two years, but that people did not turn to courts and lawyers for assistance. To help us go deeper into the topic of access to civil justice, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Rebecca Sandifer. Rebecca Sandifer is an associate professor of sociology and law at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and also a faculty fellow at the American Bar Foundation, where she founded and leads the foundation's Access to Justice Research Initiative. In 2013, she was the Hague Visiting Chair in the Rule of Law, affiliated with the Hague Institute for the Internationalization of Law. And in 2015, she was named Champion of Justice by the National Center for Access to Justice. Recently, her name has been in the news as she was named a 2018 recipient of one of the MacArthur Foundation's Genius Grants. Professor Sandifer, congratulations on that exciting recognition and welcome to Rule of Law Talk. Thank you. It's great to be here with you. Well, thanks a lot for joining us. And, uh, you know, I guess I I wonder if we could start our conversation by uh, sort of explaining the term access to civil justice. What does access to civil justice mean in in everyday language? So if you think about your everyday life, if your listeners think about their everyday lives, we all run into different kinds of problems. Problems with neighbors, problems with employers, problems with people we buy stuff from or sell things to problems with government agencies. And at this moment in history, an enormous amount of the activity of ordinary life is actually governed by the civil law. So there's contract law and employment law that governs the problems you're having with your employer. And there's contract law and laws of regulated industries like communications or finance that um, are supposed to order the problems that you have with your bank or your cell phone provider. There's housing law that governs the problem you have with your landlord or your condo association and so forth. And so if you look at surveys where we ask people not about justice but about problems and we select problems that have those civil legal aspects. So there's some law out there that governs them and and says who should get what and how the remedy should be arrived at. In the United States, somewhere between half and two-thirds of adults will have such a problem in any given year. So there's an enormous amount of civil justice activity in that sense. 
We've made these laws about these problems because we want them to to be resolved in particular ways, in ways that are consistent with the rules that we've made. And so access to justice is having access to that lawful resolution. Sure. And is the what sort of uh, give me a few more examples of the problems that people are facing? I mean, you cited some employment, some labor, some housing. I mean, what what sort of stuff? So. People have problems getting paid overtime that they are due under federal employment law, for example. Or people have difficulty getting their landlords to make repairs to their apartments that bring their apartments up to the housing code in the community that they live. Or people have difficulties with neighbors about spaces that they share or things that um, overhang one space to another. People have lots and lots of problems with insurance providers, so they they feel like their claims are unfairly denied or they can't understand the terms of their insurance. They have lots of problems accessing health care, paying for health care, lots of problems with health care billing. So it's a whole set of, of issues that are actually at the core of most families and households' lives. Lots of them involve your livelihood, whether it's your pension or your wages or your salary or benefits you may be receiving. Lots of them involve the security of your shelter, whether you're renting that shelter or you own that shelter. And another chunk of them involve your most intimate personal relationships, people that you care for and want to make sure are secure. Wow. So, I mean, it really touches just about every aspect of life. Is that right? Absolutely. And, you know, in in the United States, we don't have the same right to legal counsel in civil cases as we do in criminal cases, correct? That's right. So if you're charged with a crime and you face the possibility of going to jail or prison and you can't afford an attorney, the state will provide one for you. And we all know about this because we watch TV and we see people read their Miranda rights where this is explained to them. But on the civil side, there's no right like that. Um, you, you're not entitled to, to legal representation on, for a civil problem um, if you're going to lose your house, if you're going to lose your livelihood, if you're going to lose custody of your kids in some instances. There's no right to, to assistance in those circumstances. And I mean, do you think that the, the, the fact that there isn't the same right in civil cases as there is in, in legal, uh, in, in criminal cases, does that affect the way that civil legal needs are perceived and prioritized? Absolutely. One of the most important effects it has is that it makes it it helps. It, <laughs> we know that criminal problems are legal problems because they make it to the legal system and they get treated by lawyers. On the civil side, most justice problems never make it to the legal system. Our best guess is around 11 or 12 percent. So would make it to a court or to a hearing of some kind. Um, maybe 24% make it to lawyers. So people don't look around their lives and see the kinds of problems that they have coming into contact with law. So they don't make the connection between their own problems and the laws that are meant to help them with those problems. I mean, so I, just to cite some of the numbers that you were uh, throwing out earlier, it, it sounded like you know a, a tremendous number of people experience civil legal problems. But only 11% of, of those sorts of problems make it to the court. Why is that? Well, partly it's because Americans are not actually very litigious, even though we have this myth that we are. So people tend to solve their problems in other ways. They either try to solve them 
on their own, or they reach to family members and friends for advice, or they go to a whole range of third parties who are not attorneys. So they might go to a community organization. Many people, if they're part of a religious community, will go to the religious community with their with their justice problem. Sometimes they go to city agencies, they write to elected officials, but it's it's very unusual actually that people will take their justice problems to law. And and the reasons that people tend to sort of not take their justice problems to law is that, uh, you know, they is it that they feel uncomfortable or that it's expensive or what what motivates people to sort of avoid the, the legal system? So 10 years ago, when I started this research, what we all believed was that the problem that was that lawyers were very expensive. And so we thought everyone was sitting around thinking to themselves, wow, my employer's not paying me overtime. I should hire a lawyer to help me solve this problem. Or my landlord's not fixing this apartment. I should hire a lawyer. But it turns out that's actually not how people are thinking at all. Um, They understand their problems as problems of life. So they understand them. The most common way that people describe their justice problems in the United States is as either bad luck, so something that just happens to me, or as God's will for me. And so if these are problems that are just part of life, I'm going to solve them the way I solve all the other problems of life, which is usually by reaching out to my immediate friends and community to try to work things out, but not to file a lawsuit about it. Wow. And I mean, this this obviously impacts the way that the the outcomes of these of these cases or of these problems uh, I mean, have you looked at sort of the differences uh, between what happens when people actually go out and seek legal counsel versus what happens when they sort of do not identify those problems as, as legal problems in the first place? So there's actually not very much good information on that in the U.S. context. If we look at other countries like the United Kingdom, where the government collects data about this the way our government collects data about labor markets and the census and so on, what you see is that it, that untreated justice problems can be really harshly consequential for the people who experience them. And part of that comes from the problem itself. So maybe you're facing eviction or maybe you've lost your job or maybe your relationship is disintegrating. But then when those problems don't get some kind of assistance, they can often cascade and sort of snowball into big clusters of problems. So you lose your job and then you can't pay your mortgage. And then the stress of that makes your family break down. And now you've got to figure out the custody arrangements for your kids and so on. And so people can have these massive explosions of civil justice problems in their lives if that first one doesn't get caught. Wow. And, you know, the, some of WJP's own research has, has sort of identified that that same sort of trend where we found that uh, in the United States, almost half of the people that we had surveyed had experienced some sort of hardship as a result of that legal problem, like a stress-related illness or a relationship breakdown or some of the other things that you mentioned. The, the types of people, so it seems like the impact of having this legal problem is significant in the first place and then has these compounding effects. Are Who tends to experience these legal problems in the first place? Are they you know, evenly distributed throughout society or are there certain populations that are more at risk than others? Well, that's a really good, great question. So if you, if you look at the information we have for the United States, but also for other countries, every group in society experiences civil justice problems. So they're everybody's problem in that sense. But anywhere you look, it's always the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups that are most likely to have them. 
So in the United States, for example, people who are poor, by the definition of the federal government, report more justice problems than people who are not poor. And people who are black or African-American or Hispanic or Latino will often report more justice problems than people who are white. So it's a kind of a, a mirror of the inequalities in society who's at risk of experiencing more justice problems and also more negative consequences of those problems. Um, and so, you know, not only are some of these vulnerable pro uh, populations perhaps more susceptible to experience legal problems in the first place, but then the impact of these problems it can have a, a more negative effects on, the, on these groups uh, sort of after the fact. Is that right? Absolutely. Because they're more they're, they're closer to the edge to begin with. And. I mean, so, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about how these problems, you know, touch every, you know, nearly every aspect of life and, you know, how, you know, there are some particular populations who are more at risk and experience greater negative effects of civil legal problems. It this seems like it, it would be, you know, uh, an important problem for states to address. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what states are doing here in the U.S. to to combat, you know, this justice gap, these civil, civil legal problems. Sure. So some of your listeners may be aware that the federal government has a small program that funds civil legal aid for people who are poor by the definition of the federal government. And that's about it's about 9,000 staff total around the country, so about probably about 6,000 of them are attorneys, and that's to serve about 60 million people. So um, there's obviously a big gap between the ability of those resources to serve people and the, and the population eligible for the service and needing the service. So states are trying to find ways to move into that gap by providing some of the services that lawyers used to provide using resources that are not traditionally fully qualified attorneys. So one of the most interesting programs is in New York City, where you, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a gigantic metropolis. It has a very, very busy court system. So for example, the Brooklyn housing courts hear 59,000 cases a year. So there's a lot of, of activity that's making it to the court system. And in the Brooklyn housing courts, the court system, working with some nonprofits in, the, in various communities, created a program that they called Court Navigators. And there were different kinds of court navigators that intervened at different places in, in the, the, the process of eviction cases and debt collection cases. But there was one program that looked like it was, was very successful. And those were, were court navigators who were trained social workers who worked your case from the beginning to the end. So when you showed up with your eviction, you'd be screened. They'd figure out if you were eligible and if they could help you. And then you would be assigned someone who would go with you to every court appearance, to every meeting with the clerk, to every, every conversation with the landlord's attorney in the, in the hallway, who would help you organize your papers, help you organize what you were going to say. And then just as important, they spent a lot of time outside of court working with you to connect you with benefits and services that you were eligible for that would help you pay your rent. Um, so, for example, you might be eligible for some veterans' benefits that you didn't realize and hadn't applied for, so they'd help you connect to those. Or um, many low-income families pool their resources and form multi-generational households, but it's not always the case that everybody in the household contributes to the rent. So sometimes you might have an elderly parent with an adult child, and the adult child's working, but maybe not 
not contributing to the rent. So this this program would um, connect that family with some financial counseling and family counseling so everybody could get on the same page. And they had, working at a pilot scale um, and selecting their own cases, so not taking cases randomly, in their first year, they had a 100% success rate. That is, no one who they worked with got evicted. That's pretty impressive. That's that's extremely impressive. Uh, th- th- tell me more about it. Why? How are they able to achieve such you know incredible results? Well, I think one of the most important things that they did is they treated the underlying causes of the legal problem of the eviction. So these were all evictions for non-payment of rent. One of the most important things they did was connect people with resources that would allow them to pay their rent. Now, they also at the same time worked to improve the housing conditions. So there are laws in every community that say what an apartment has to be like. And sometimes you can get a rebate on the rent if your landlord hasn't been keeping it up. But certainly when that problem touches the court, if you have someone who's savvy and trained and can give you advice, you can not only get to a place where you can pay your rent and and have a good agreement with your landlord, but you can also have a better apartment. You can get your landlord to comply with the housing codes. And, and the people who are helping, uh, you know, the people in need through sort of the court system here, these are not lawyers. No, they're social workers who have some training in how the courts work and uh, the different kinds of defenses to, a, to an eviction. But they don't give legal advice. They're not permitted to give legal advice. And they also don't represent you. So they can accompany you, but they can't speak for you on and, and make, make your case on your behalf. The one kind of power of speaking in court that they, that they do have in New York is judges can address them factual questions. So does Mrs. Smith have the receipt for the rent that she says she paid? If Mrs. Smith is too stressed out or, or confused or afraid and doesn't want to answer that question, the navigator can answer for her. So they, they, can, they can kind of mediate between you and the court system but without doing the core parts of what lawyers do. Sure. So it sounds like they're solving a couple of different problems. I mean, one is just purely, you know, helping people, you know, navigate the the complexities of the court system. And then the second thing is also sort of addressing these potentially cascading problems that we were talking about before that can that can pile up and compound the, you know, the initial legal problem in the first place. Absolutely. And has there been you said that this is being piloted in in New York. It sounds like it's been incredibly successful. Is this something that could be expanded beyond New York City and potentially out to other states? Yes, I think it is. They are they are putting it into place in upstate New York in some in some places. That's my understanding. But it's certainly a very translatable model. Now, one thing you'd want to think about if you were taking this model from, say, New York to, which is a very resource-rich environment. It's resource-rich in the sense that the city invests a lot in housing. um, And it's also, there are lots of nonprofits and, and other services available that the navigator can connect you to. So if we move that to a state that was quite that had fewer of those resources like Arkansas or Oklahoma, then what the navigator could do would be probably more weighted towards the accompaniment and the helping you understand the process because they can only connect you to what exists outside. And has there been has there been buy-in within the legal community for this sort of model? Has there been any sort of obstacles you know, uh, with with uh, the the legal community about 
sort of adding this this new layer of support within the court system? It's it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things about the, the legal professions in the United States is they have an almost total monopoly over every bit of the practice of law. Um, so if you compare American lawyers, for example, to British lawyers, American lawyers have a mono- usually a monopoly on giving legal advice, on telling you, it seems, hey, this is the kind of situation that you have, and these are your options. So only a lawyer is allowed to do that in the United States, whereas there are other countries where lots of people can do it. There's kind of principled resistance to having um, non-lawyers who nudge up against those boundaries, but there have, hasn't been organized action so far um, in the nonprofit sphere. Now, when you start, because because these, these kinds of providers are serving clients who aren't buying lawyer services anyways. But if we were to think about expanding this uh, to, to lower middle income households who also have many, many justice problems and great difficulty in connecting with services for those problems, if we expanded that and created a market component, I think lawyers would become more actively engaged in opposing it. But it, but it, for the time being, it sounds like it's been incredibly effective at expanding access to, to, to justice, at least within New York City community. Yes, and and part of you know part of that is because it it appears like it works. It does what we want it to do, but also it has a lot of support from the court system. So even though most justice problems never make it to court systems in the United States, court systems are overwhelmed by people who are in there who have no legal training and are trying to represent themselves in these cases that involve the core areas of their lives. Uh, The National Center for State Courts estimates that something like 75% of civil cases in this country have at least one one litigant who has no, no counsel of any kind. And so these folks, courts worry about fairness, and they also feel overwhelmed by all the questions that these people ask, by how late they are for things, you know, because they don't, if you come in with no experience, you don't know how this process works. And so the court systems are, are very supportive of these kinds of supports that can bring people assistance that lets them understand the process that they're in and what actions they can take in that process. Sure, absolutely. I mean, and that sounds like a really exciting initiative for for everyone to keep an eye on. Are are there any other pilot initiatives that seem to be having a uh you know, this this type of impact? So there are a range of programs like different flavors of Court Navigator. They have different names, Sherlock's and Merlin's, and they have, they have very cute acronyms in some instances. <laughs> Sometimes they're staffed by uh, people who are paid. Often they're staffed by volunteers. So I think there's a there's a lot of energy around trying these different sorts of models around the country. Then the state of Washington had a very different idea, which was to create a new occupation that's kind of like a junior varsity lawyer. So they called it a limited license legal technician. You have to have a paralegal degree from a community college, and you have to take three courses in a law school. You have to take three bar exams and pay a licensing fee, and then you're certified for a limited practice, limited in two ways. You can't do everything that a lawyer can do, so you can give legal advice and you can file documents on people's behalf, but you can't represent them, whether in court or outside of it. Um, And then you can only practice currently in one area of law, which is family law. So there are some states that are thinking about that that model as well. So let's let's see if we could create a new market segment that at least middle income folks would have access to, and maybe legal aid offices would hire some of these kinds of staff and so forth. Sure, and and the the early evidence seems like it's uh, it's helping address the justice gap. 
Well, it's actually that program has had a very slow start, and part of that slow start is related to what we were talking about earlier about people's lack of a recognition that their justice problems are justice problems and that there are different kinds of solutions out there that exist for them. So there's a there's an educational um, activity that has to go both ways between people who are providing legal services and communities that have justice problems so that those two groups of people can have a better understanding of what each other need and how each other are thinking. Sure. So it sounds like education is is also an important complementary activity to, you know, in, improving the effectiveness of some of these other solutions. Absolutely. And how about, you know, sort of stepping into a, a slightly uh, different approach to addressing the, the justice gap? Uh, what about some of the technological solutions that are being developed right now? I mean, I know that one of the areas that you're working on is, is on legally empowering technologies. Uh, what do you see out there right now that seems to be making a difference? The way I would describe that sector right now is that it's very exciting and there's a lot of promise, but there's not a lot of impact at this stage. Part of that happens because there's no sector organized around legal technologies yet, so they're just developed by people who are kind of on their own and have a cool idea. And some of them are beautiful and incredibly sophisticated tools. So that's one issue. Another issue is that they're often branded as legal technologies, so as things that will help you with a specific kind of legal problem like um, eviction or uh, expungement. And that requires the consumer or the person who might use that tool to think, to recognize that they have a justice problem. So there's kind of a marketing or outreach issue that I think that sector needs to, to work on. Another thing is that it's, it's not clear that everyone wants to use computers or apps to solve core problems of their lives. Um, there are many, many people who, and they're not only... They're not only older people, uh, but there are many, many people who would much rather talk to a human being and have an actual interaction. And so one of the things that's developing in terms of our knowledge base around these technologies is that a lot of them might be more effective if there was some kind of trusted intermediary who used them with you so you could have a human interaction and then the, the tool could do its work alongside. But it's pretty clear that just creating a lot of really cool tools and putting them out there is not really connecting much with the people who need the help. Sure. And, you know, I, I think you were just touching on one of the questions that I was thinking a little bit about these technologies is, you know, that your research goes uh, deep into inequality. And, you know, one of the questions I had was, you know, does does the uptake or the development of these sorts of technologies, is there a risk of actually sort of uh, unintentionally widening the gap where, you know, a particular uh, group of users are able to easily access these new tools and able to, uh, you know, sort of use the technology to solve their legal problems? while at the same time, there's uh, perhaps a less affluent, less educated population that is being left out from these sort of new technologies. Is, is there a risk of that? I think it's definitely a concern. And it's a bigger concern when you have, for instance, a court system that says we're going to move all of some kind of case into online dispute resolution. So the only way to solve this problem is going to be by using a computer and having access to broadband and having a big enough data plan and so on. That's where you run into the biggest risk of, of creating new inequalities. Or if you replace all of your human services 
in the legal aid sphere or in the community assistance sphere with technology, or you say the only way you can get to us is through this web portal, that's when you really run into this kind of risk. I think what 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 it would be great for the justice sector to start they, and people are thinking about this, but start developing in, in an intentional way is a kind of textured mosaic of services so that you can, if you if you want to talk to a human being or you need to talk to a human being, there are some human beings that you can have access to. And if you need someone to accompany you around a court process, there are some human beings who can do that. But if you feel comfortable creating a form on your own and e-filing it, then that service is available to you too. So that, so that we recognize the great diversity of experience and capacity capacity in the country and create a justice system that can serve all of those people because it's their justice system. Absolutely. Very interesting. And, you know, just to sort of change topics here just for a minute, I I wanted to talk a little bit about the global perspective here because at the World Justice Project, you know, we don't only work in the United States, but in countries all around the world. And I know that you're doing a little work um, with the OECD, for example, on on access to justice. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about some of the differences that you see between the United States and in other countries on on the access to civil justice issue. I think that uh, many other countries, not all by any means, have been earlier to recognize that access to justice is a route to solving problems that have been intractable for a long time. Um, problems around debt, problems around housing, problems around access to health care, that access to justice is a tool. And and I th- the OECD project is, is very much focused around understanding that access to justice is a route to what the OECD calls distributed growth. So improving the capacities and development of different communities in a way that that equalizes at least somewhat those communities. So I think that's better understood outside of the United States. I think another thing that's better understood outside of the United States is the importance of understanding people's experiences and their contacts with the justice system. So we have in the U.S. an amazing data infrastructure for the census, for labor market activities, for all kinds of financial activities, but we have almost nothing for the civil justice system. Whereas if you look at other countries like the United Kingdom or Australia, they have either government agencies or sort of arm's length groups that that spend a lot of time and money and intelligence in understanding how the justice system is working, what kinds of services are working for people, and so on. And one of the great things about this moment in the world is that the Sustainable Development Goals call every country to think about access to justice. And the great thing about the Sustainable Development Goals is they is your, your response has to be measurable. You have to be able to assess your success. And that's really pushing America to be more open to what's going on in other kinds of countries. And I think it's very exciting and very hopeful. Absolutely. I mean, and it sounds like some of the discussions around the SDGs are really helping move the conversation forward around uh, access to justice. Uh, what can you just give us a little bit of a sense of, of what's being done at the international level to, to increase access to civil justice? Well, many countries have more flexibility to create different kinds of paralegal or non-lawyer service providers. Um, There's a big network called NAMATI that 
empowers communities to develop their own paralegal programs so that people can solve. For instance, in a developing country, uh, land claims are an important issue, either because of inheritance, because your family's been living on this land and you need to document that you get to stay, or because a multinational corporation is coming in and trying to take over parts of the land. various reasons. There are there are paralegal programs that help with that. In every community in the world, there are different kinds of family problems related to relationships breaking up and the care of children and the care of old people and the care of other kinds of dependent folks and also the the possession of stuff um, when when people die. And so there are a range of, of paralegal programs that develop for that. And I think those, again, are, are very exciting opportunities to recognize that this is everybody's justice system, and there are a wide range of ways in which we can give people access to it. Fascinating. Yeah, very exciting. Uh, well, Professor, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with us today. I just have one last question for you, and that's uh, what's on the horizon? What projects or questions are you looking to, to tackle next? Well, I think um, most of my work, I do do some international work, but most of my focus, both in terms of research and, and action, is in the United States. And I think this is a really important moment because there's new recognition to the issue of access to civil justice. The MacArthur is an example of that new recognition. A really important moment to think about what would be some big demonstration projects that would show Access to justice is an essential tool for solving problems that we all value, problems that affect everybody. And so what I'm working on now is sort of thinking about, with others, of course, um, what those projects would look like and where we could pull them off and who would do it and how we would pay for it. Fascinating. Well, we'll have to keep our eye out for, for those new projects. Maybe that can be the subject of our, of our next podcast. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me today on, on Rule of Law Talk, and we'll be sure to follow uh, your work and, and everything that's developing with uh, the MacArthur Grant very closely. Um, and it's great to see what else uh, you'll uncover along the way and what other solutions might be out there to, to improve access to civil justice. So thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be with you.